It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C., this is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, we are here in Studio A here at Podcast Village, your podcasting headquarters if you're here in the District of Columbia. Uh, Joining me in studio as they do every time we record, he is the former... Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade. He is the one we know as Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And joining us behind the glass, he is Rob, the engineer, keeping us honest. Hello, Rob. Hello, hello. Uh, Always good having you. And joining us from a remote location, an undisclosed location in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the author of such great books as American Politics on the Rocks. He's Rich Rubino. Hello, Rich. Hello, Justin. And joining us from what looks like either his backyard fire pit or the seventh ring of hell is the longtime Democratic lawyer and former Joe Biden political operative, Dan Littner, Esquire. Hello, Daniel. I'm just here trying to give fashion critiques to Jim Jordan. (laughs) Again, that's the second show this week that you have made a Jim Jordan fashion reference. Okay. Uh, Lots of stuff going on. Obviously, if you've heard our earlier podcast we were talking about what's going on with the impeachment. We're keeping eyes on what's going on there. But there's other political news happening here in Washington and around the world. Let's first start with the uh, the big, the other big gorilla in the room, and that is the 2020 Democrats. And that continues to be uh, just a soap opera unlike anything we're seeing. People are shifting. There's juxtapositions. Uh, we're hearing all kinds of rumors, but let's get with the the big ones. Right now, as it looks, we're seeing a lot of uh, early states, the big ones being New Hampshire and Iowa. It's telling a really disparate story. If you look at Iowa and certain polls, Pete Buttigieg has anywhere from a two to as much as seven point lead over uh, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. If you go to New Hampshire, it becomes a little bit different. It looks like there's a tighter race there, but all within the margin of error between Buttigieg, Warren, and Biden. I guess the question is, and, and we'll get to the outlier here, that being Michael Bloomberg. We'll talk about him in a minute, but as far as the traditional set Republicans that have been in so far. Wait, you're leaving off Duval Patrick? No, we'll talk about Duval Patrick, too. Okay, because that's and what we haven't need. even mentioned Bernie yet. So, and Well, Bernie, Bernie seems, Bernie's right there. He's, just, he's, he's fourth. I mean, he's coming up a strong well, fourth-ish. But, Wayne Mason's running, too. What's that? Wayne Mason, the mayor of uh, Miramar, Florida, is still in the race. Okay, you're you're on timeout now. You're on timeout now. <laughs> Just letting you know. It's going to be a while before we get to you, Rich. Um, Dan Lipner, let me go to you. The, the thing about it is, obviously, the impeachment hearings, the name Biden, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, that connection is definitely taking a toll on the campaign, on, uh, on Joe Biden himself, it appears. Is is Joe Biden still sustainable as the lead horse in this race? Okay, first I disagree that Hunter Biden is an issue in the Democratic primary, other than the fact that uh, it's showing. Uh, and I'm a former Joe Biden staffer, and I think Joe Biden is a is a great guy personally. However, uh, I will have to admit he's showing his age um, during the campaign. Um, what is going on in Iowa? is somewhat amazing so the the mayor pete is coming across as a moderate which is impressive however clearly not a social moderate he is a married gay mayor in indiana 
Um, and he, he has now jumped ahead to a pretty clear lead, in part because, and this is based on some of the polling and focus groups in Iowa, because he has a more moderate approach to how things can get done. And, and even uh, former President Barack Obama chiming in saying, you can't go too far left. And this has actually been a dig at both Warren and Sanders, who uh, I have no evidence for this, but I, my gut says is actually a bit of a coalition there between the two of them um, as far as health care, because Warren has taken a very aggressive stance for single payer health care. And Buttigieg, to his credit, saying, you know, the how portion of this is an important now, thing. Alan Moore. And he's been very moderate on this, and seemingly that's jumped him ahead in Iowa. All right, Alan Moore. Well, and maybe Dan was going to expand on that. So Elizabeth Warren had this very aggressive, arguably to the left of, of, of Sanders' approach, uh, mostly paid for by a, a 6% annual tax on the wealth of billionaires. So she wanted about half of their wealth in, over a period of 10 years, but denied that. Um, but, but that had been her position. It was freaking out. Many Democrats and independents and Republicans and Wall Streeters. And lo and behold, Elizabeth Warren, who is criticizing her 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 colleagues for their incremental approach, saying, you got to go for it. You got to think big. You're sacrificing principle. And Biden and others said, we're not sacrificing principle. We actually believe in what we're saying, and we resent the suggestion that we're somehow compromising what we believe should be done. Lo and behold, she had a personal epiphany over the past weekend and announced a modification to her strategy, which basically is, okay, for the first three years of my presidency, it will be, pardon the expression, Medicare for all who want it. Sound familiar? That's the Buttigieg construct. And it's consistent with what Joe Biden has talked about, which is improving upon Obamacare. So Warren, not nobody's fool. She may annoy a lot of people and feel like a scold, uh, which is hurting her, I think, is kind of she she had this momentum and then she kind of flattened out. Joe Biden was was in a in a bit of a fall. He kind of flattened out. And then here comes Buttigieg as the guy who doesn't have the flaws of the others. He's not crazy left like Warren and Sanders. And he's not old and inarticulate and stumbling like Biden. He's new. He's fresh. He makes sense, but and Dan and, Littner, and it, he he's he's kind of the one who rises among that f- group of four. The other four of whom, the other three of whom, are making people increasingly uncomfortable. Dan Lipner, Alan's got a point that we're starting to see him pick up in places like Iowa. We're starting to see him get some traction in places like New Hampshire. The problem is. Pete Buttigieg, if you look at the most recent polls in South Carolina, has a 0% register with black voters. Is Can can Pete Buttigieg survive being mainstream, middle of the road, and not garner at least a 10% black vote registration? Well, so this is a serious question. So this used to be a critique I could throw at Republicans— for decades, literally, um, I had said that Republicans could get African Americans in the South to vote Republican if they could get past the we hate black people and brown people policies, um, because African Americans in the South are not social progressives. Um, I've seen this firsthand. I've been in the African American churches. Uh, there, there is a window of opportunity. However, as Joe Scarsborough has correctly pointed out, and many others, African-American women do not waste their votes. And so Pete Buttigieg, um, who is somebody, and this is now, I have, I have to quote people that I don't know personally. Justin, you could, should invite her on this show. Uh, Donna Brazil has said that Pete Buttigieg is somebody that African-American voters in the South just don't know. And whereas Joe Biden is somebody they do. 
And that's part of the reason Duval Patrick is is now jumped in the race for while it, it, it makes my head hurt. Um, I understand the math he's seeing. I don't think he's going to go anywhere, but it's partially because there is clearly a window of opportunity for a moderate who can, who can score African-American votes, particularly in the South. But um, this is completely inside politics in democratic politics. And I mean, this is the same argument I threw at the Bernie Sanders folks that Bernie wouldn't have been the nominee over Hillary Clinton back in uh, back in the last election cycle, because if Bernie Sanders could have gotten a handful of African-Americans to vote for him in the primaries, he would have been the nominee. But it here's, would have been fine. Right. But, but here's but, the but thing. Hold on. You have to get those folks. Right. But but Rich Rubino. Going off of what Alan and and uh, Dan have said, it, you know, it, it doesn't strike me that uh, a moder- that that an American military veteran with combat experience, a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and Navy Reserves, uh, mayor of a urban town, not a big town, but an urban city, um. Is America ready to elect a white, gay, veteran Democrat into the White House? Uh, I believe that it is. I think that if you look at the polling, I mean, look at, look at the issue of just of gay marriage. Back in 2004, part of the reason George W. Bush was elected president is because Karl Rove, who worked for him, got a, got a ballot initiative in Ohio that essentially declared, gay, declared uh, marriage being between a man and a woman. That was an issue that brought a lot of people out. John, uh, that brought a lot of people out. They also voted for George W. Bush that year, John Kerry, and almost every Democratic presidential candidate, with the exception of the outliers like Dennis Kucinich and Al Sharpton and Karamosi Brown, were all against the idea of gay marriage. Even in 2008, Barack and John Obama, John, Ed- John Edwards, Hillary Clinton were all against the idea of gay marriage. Now we're at a state, we're at a position in the Democratic presidential sweepstakes where every single candidate, from Steve Bullock in Montana to Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota, it is basically a foregone conclusion that you're going to be for gay marriage. In the United States Senate, there's like two senators who are still against it. The, the, the momentum has essentially shifted, even if you look at the polling, even young evangelicals. So the answer is yes, I think that that will be a lot less of an issue in terms of somebody in terms of gay marriage just because it's, such, it's so much more accepted. I mean, even some Republicans, Rod Portman, for senator from Ohio, former Vice President Dick Cheney, now support gay marriage. So I think that we've really seen just a paradigm shift um, in terms of going in terms of support for gay rights, support for gay marriage. And I think as you get more, as, and I think certainly the the newer, the newer generation, the numbers are going to be just it's the same the same group of people who essentially say that you know global warming that global warming is not is not is not man made. Those people are now getting more and more limited as the generations get further and further. Um, it's it just as the right. generation X and the millennials increase. Uh, Alan more Alan more than Dan Lipner. Yeah, so it, it, I just wanted to, to, to mention how intriguing it is in the American political system and the way we uh, select candidates um, for national election. There's this, this odd juxtaposition of what's going on among the Democrats. We're looking at Iowa because that's first. And Iowa is a state that's right out in the middle and it's in play. New Hampshire is the first actual primary. Um, and, and New Hampshire can be in play. We then go down to South Carolina, which I will say, I'll go out on a limb, South Carolina is not in play in 2020 unless, mm-hmm. unless you know, a cataclysm occurs. But South Carolina is the firewall for Joe Biden. If he doesn't do well in Iowa and doesn't do well in New Hampshire, we go to this state where he continues to enjoy broad and deep support among African-Americans, largely because he was vice president to the still-beloved Joe Biden, uh, uh, Barack Obama, and because of his own personal story and, and, and some history. So there's this irony that it may be that a state that is not in play in the national election may... Shift the mood after the first couple of states, and then there's Nevada creeps in there. It's just ironic 
that we have that. I'm not being but critical I want to come back to you I just on that. think it's an interesting thing to I, reflect upon. I do. I want to come back to that, but I want to go to Dan first, dovetailing off of what you're saying, Alan, is uh, you go to South Carolina and you look at the major support, you know, largely black voters are for Joe Biden for whatever reason. But how do they rectify or how do they reconcile the Joe Biden that was the vice president for uh, Barack Obama at the same time they're voting for the Joe Biden that gave them the crime bill in 94 that had the busing issues in Delaware that he was supportive of? How, How do they come to grips with that and making that whole for them? Because that's inside the Beltway intelligentsia arguments, which is also nonsense. Why, uh, why is it nonsense? A- ask Senator Harris how well she did as soon as she had to answer the follow-up question on busing when, lo and behold, her answer was identical to Vice President Biden's answer to busing as far as local answers and everything else there. Well, the initial moment there was a real question and a real good job for her for making a name for herself and caused a bump for her nationally. What's she floating at? 4%, 3% right now? Well, no, 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 but hold on, hold on. Go, go back to the question. But, but, but go no, back but, to the but, question. But, but I mean, that's the point. The, the actual voters versus the, the folks who are inside the Beltway who see this stuff and go, well, aha, this is obviously what this stuff means. No, there's something more to it. I mean, as far as the actual arguments over time, I've gone back at the legislative history on this stuff. And the 94 crime bill, one of the one of the groups that was actually radically in favor of it, including those harsh penalties for crack cocaine, was the Congressional Black Caucus mm-hmm. because crack cocaine was killing the African-American community. So while the rhetoric sounds great at a national level, once you dig into it and real folks have been following this stuff for a long time, and this goes back to you with clarity, the African-American women voters who pay attention to this stuff, who know these issues, go, you know, Joe Biden, while there may have been some nonsense involved with surrounding it and may not have been perfect, his heart was in the right place. They absolutely believe he's there. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I was just real quick. Say, I think that, yeah, I think that there's a disconnect between some African American leaders, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, with the African American community. Go back to that 94 crime bill. You had Kawise Manfume, for example, in Maryland. You had Alan Wheat in Missouri, who was running for a Senate seat, supported that crime bill. And also, Bill Clinton during the 1990s had a job approval rating of like of about 93, 94% with the African American community, actually more popular than the more liberal folks like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Um, I think sometimes they also elect more liberal leaders than they actually are. And, for, you know, for example, I think some folks like um, Elijah Cummings and um, Kuisa Minfumi are probably further to the left than actual the African-American community, the actual electorate. Right. Alan Moore, uh, we're seeing, just to kind of come off of uh, the Biden issue, uh, I, want, I do want to bring up the fact Steyer is now at 4%. We've already got one billionaire in there. Uh, Yang seems to be coming off of the stage. He doesn't seem to be sustainable. Uh, does it make sense for Michael Bloomberg to actively get in here seeing that uh, Joe Biden may not be the moderate that's going to win the day after all? Well, you know, he's just trying to, to, to keep it a live option. You know, he filed in a couple of states where the date was coming up and he either had to file or not. He could file. It could be a, a, a little bit of a stalking horse that he would do for himself. It'd be like, what, what's the reaction? And if the, the reaction is the Democrats are appalled, um, people are saying, oh, great, all we need among Democrats is another billionaire to go along with Steyer. And and there's no traction at all. Well, he's not in yet. He And he doesn't have the money problem that that a lot of people do and he's got an enormous amount of knowledge and information so i it and even though biden has sort of stabilized so biden was in a what looked like it might become a free fall and then it stabilized 
Um, now we got Buttigieg, who fills some of that same space, who's on the rise, and that would be something that Bloomberg would be, ba- be uh, paying close attention to. Now, Dan said that, I think he said, that, that Hunter Biden I- is not an issue. I believe that Hunter Biden will be an issue if we ever finish with this impeachment stuff. And I don't think the Republicans are done with asking about Hunter Biden. And if they did it in a reasonable way, as they did it last week with one of the State Department officials who said, we saw this happening and we brought it to the vice president's office and said, this doesn't look good. So are you saying that that, I'm saying that issue is. is the damage is if he does become the nominee, the damage will happen in the general. No, I'm saying that 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 we're not done even at this stage yet with with the damage and impeachment. We're not done with the damage. The Democrats are leaving that issue alone, letting Biden have to deal with the Republicans and are saying, hey, we don't want to be using the Republican talking points. But once that issue gets passed in impeachment, you can be certain that Democrats are going to start asking Joe Biden about it. All right. Dan Littner, I'm giving you the last word for this segment. And Alan's actually got a very good point on this. And I really, really wish some national Democrat would point out there is a chamber that is fully in control of Republicans that could conduct investigations on their own on Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. That would be the U.S. Senate. Invite the Senate to do their own investigation. They are more than welcome to do it and get them to do it right now. This is three-dimensional chess. Get that issue out of the way. So why doesn't so why now. doesn't a Ron Johnson, a Mitch McConnell, or anybody of that of of that spectrum call for the Senate to do their own? I mean, they've got their own investigative branch, they've got their own capabilities. Why not pull the trigger on that? Well, there's two choices. Uh, either a they think it's ridiculous. They don't want any part of the clown show that is the Trump administration in the U.S. Senate. And there's some hint that McConnell, at least, that wants no part of of uh, Donald Trump that he can avoid. All right. Or it is three dimensional chess that he actually wants to hold it for the general election. Here we go. And yeah. they, they would get right now if they tried to do it in this particular time frame, they would get hammered, hammered as being purely political. But Dan makes a very good point that it's always an option. Yeah, that's a true point. All right. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk about some of the uh, troubling uh, pictures that we're seeing coming out of Hong Kong. Chinese are cracking down on students. It's getting violent. It's not a pretty picture. We'll talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics.
Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And we are back for the best political podcast you've never downloaded. Alan Moore here in studio. We've got uh, Rob the Engineer behind the glass. And from a remote location, Dan Lipner. Dan, what are you drinking? I am drinking ginger ale. Okay, good God. It didn't look like it. And uh, we got Rich Rubino up in the Bay State. Hey, you want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the the troubling pictures that were in the troubling reports we're getting out of uh, Hong Kong, in case you haven't been following. There is uh, what started off as uh, a large-scale student protest uh, several, I, I guess, several weeks ago, almost months ago, Alan Moore. Uh, has now turned into uh, violent pro violent crackdowns by the Chinese central government in uh, in Hong Kong. There are uh, there's been a recent uptick in the violent protesting. There's been fires lit up at several college campuses around Hong Kong. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of arrests just over the past few days. Thousands and thousands of protesters that have been clashing with police, especially this week. Uh, some of them have been holed up at several colleges. The uh, central police, the tactical teams have gone in and raided many of those uh, encampments and made many arrests. Uh, as as of today, which is a Tuesday, uh, there were about 100 or so protesters at the uh, main technical college there in in central Hong Kong, uh, but it's it's not it's it's not a good situation. Alan, we'll only start with you on this one. There's obviously the pictures coming out of Hong Kong are not doing any favors for the central government out of Beijing. Is this something that you know? Uh, President Xi and the central government can say, well, you know, who's going to yell at us? The United States? Well, they've got their own little problems. Uh, is is what's happening here in the United States empowering the central government in China to crack down? Well, I think that, that what we'll never know is if our president had spoken out early, months ago, as many urged him to do, um, and he chose not to do, which is his right. Um, uh, he saw no reason to antagonize the 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 the, the Chinese uh, president, especially when we were in some in the midst of and continue to be in the midst of some very sensitive and important tra- ongoing trade negotiations. And 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 the and the president, who, as we know, whether he's a good deal maker or not, is always a deal maker. So there's no f- underlying principle, moral authority, sense of history that that guides him. It's all transactional. And, and, and because he's not burdened with things like history, broad long-term U.S. interests over the last 50 years and the next 50, just to, to pick a time frame, um, it's always transactional. And he's thinking, why do I want to step in and be critical of these people I'm trying to get something from and trying to deal with? My God, if they were critical of me, I know that I would give them the finger and and dig in my heels. So we, we've got a president who doesn't have this sense of, of what historically has been most successful. We've been silent it's not clear to me, though, in that silence that that has right. that that has empowered the Chinese. Right. It certainly hasn't given them much to hold back. But this is critical. It hasn't Im- curtailed any of the this violence. Is, no, no. But this is really important to China. They they got Hong Kong back. They need to be able to exert control, 
And we predicted yeah. here on this show right. months ago this was not going to end, end well. well. And we're now, I think, seeing the final phases, at least of this chapter, and this may be... The, the, there may be no other chapters right. for a while, as as you pointed out. They're arresting hundreds, hundreds of them. Yeah. Dan Lipner, go ahead. Okay, so you got to bear with me here. I saw something I had never seen before on both CNN and MSNBC, both laying side by side Fox News and Republicans side by side for identical talking points. And this had to do with the impeachment. Circling back to the Hong Kong issue and way back when the NBA got killed for a a, a coach for the Now he was Rockets, the he was the general manager for the Houston Rockets that did a making tweet making a comment in support right. of the protesters in Hong Kong and Fox News absolutely destroyed them followed up by LeBron James who has a financial interest since the revenue sharing in the NBA affects him directly, saying, you know, you got to dial this back. And Fox yeah. News chimed in with how horrible this was that LeBron James was so silent on the issues of Hong Kong. Right. And I literally just pulled this up within hours. The White House has still been silent on the issue. And this well, Alan is absolutely correct as far as the the lack of history, but where is the moral compass at play? The fact that the and I'm I'm now going to link entirely the Republican Party with Fox News since there is nothing else at play in Paris. Right. That suggests that the President of the United States not coming, at least rhetorically, to the aid of the Democratic protesters in Hong Kong. Yet, LeBron James is somehow on the hook. This is challenging, to so, say the least. Right. So, Rich Rubino, Dan brings up a really interesting point in this, is there seems to be an identity crisis within, particularly within the Republican Party. I, You know, you look on social media and every far-right uh, conservative advocate and pundit are showing look they're they're holding up pictures of the they're hold, they they show pictures of look they're holding the american flag they want our democracy we should fight for their democracy yet when donald trump kind of goes eh, i shouldn't really get involved that's a a z problem not a me problem uh where does these two issues uh, bring the Republicans back to the Republicans of old. Had this happened under George W. Bush uh, or even Barack Obama, we would have been absolutely front and center in the world stage saying, hey, Beijing, you got to bring this back a notch or else we're going to have a real big problem. That doesn't seem to be the case now. Well, I think Donald Trump actually brought the Republican Party back to where I guess you could say the status quo before the status quo. He's bringing it back to the party of essentially Warren G. Harding and Calvin Coolidge, where they talked about not having permanent alliances, essentially. <clears throat> um, I mean, that's really what he's brought it back to. He's brought it back to kind of, at least in, in rhetoric, being a, somewhat of a non-interventionist. That all kind of changed in the 52 election between the Republican primary, between Eisenhower and Robert Taft. Taft was basically a self-declared right. non-interventionist. Eisenhower won, and the party's become somewhat of an interventionist party between Eisenhower and George but W. These Bush. Are different, but these are different times, Rich. I mean, no, no, I'm saying that I'm saying that the I'm just saying that the Republican Party, just like the Democratic Party, I'm saying that they essentially they change over they, they, the ideology changes over time and they change with who the president is. I mean, when Bill Clinton was president, for example, it was Tom DeLay and the Republican Party who were opposed to the interventions in Haiti, who were opposed to the interventions in Bosnia, who were opposed to the intervention in Kosovo. Then Donald, then you know George W. Bush becomes president and they support the intervention in Iraq. Um, I think particularly there was the, you had that kind of right after the end of the Cold War, you had this divide between the neoconservatives who essentially wanted the U.S. to be you want the U.S. to continue an interventionist foreign policy after the dilapidation of the Soviet Union, and then you had more traditional conservatives like Pat Buchanan 
who said that the U.S. should essentially come home and should be more interventionist. Right. And the neoconservatives won in terms of George W. Bush. Right. Now Donald Trump's become president. The neoconservatives who would have supported someone in the primary other than other than Donald Trump, someone like Marco Rubio, for example. Now Donald Trump's okay. president. So now the tide shifts more toward where the party so, was before under Warren G. Harding. But parties are not static. Parties are moving parts. Right. So Alan Moore. Where I get confused is when we see the – I mean, everybody in the world knows that Hong Kong is a center, a huge economic center of finance, of trade. Uh, it is the bastion you know, of the economic heartbeat of the Pacific Rim. So if you're talk, if you're the United States, if you're the White House, if you're Donald Trump and you're Mike Pompeo, you're seeing all this turmoil happening and you know that you're trying to keep this economy on a roll. Are they playing this smart by staying out of it and letting Xi do it so we can deal with the tariff situation? Or do they continue to run ramshot and possibly impact... Finan- you know the financial markets in the in the Pacific. Well, here's here, here's the, the the challenge. So, you know, Is I'm, this a I'm, I'm I'm happy to it, it may be I I may I, I'm happy to to be critical of of the president and and his ignorance, but at the same time, his instincts um, are whoa, be careful here what we what we're getting into. We talk about what George Bush or Barack Obama might have done. We don't know what they would have done. They were not, we, we might have been anticipating this for a long time, but once once it started to occur, it's really tricky. Whether you're in the middle of a major trade negotiation or not, China-U.S. economic ties and relationship has been growing of growing importance for a long time. I don't know what President Obama would have done or President George W. Bush or President Clinton or anybody else would have done. I hope, I hope it would have been something more than silence. But There would have been I, some comments. But, but exactly, that's my point. But I don't think we would have been out there saying, you need to cut this out or something bad's going to happen. I don't think there would have been. It, it's well, just. We, I mean, we, we saw it in Tiananmen we, Square. I mean, we we that was so. Every one of these things that occurs has its own history, its own e- evolution. I would like to have seen us say something, but I am not going to say that. Had we spoken out, everything would have been different. It's just. Silence in the face of authoritarianism but does, and doesn't harm that, to persons. But doesn't that give us a hypocrisy that we have to deal with as far as which is more important, the continuing hot economy or the fact that we promote, particularly in a place like Hong Kong, our democratic values and we've got and we're showing pictures of protesters holding up American flags? All I'm saying is I hate the silence, but... It's not as though we had some muscular opportunities and arguments that we passed. We didn't have a lot of cards to play. I would like us to have played a few cards of principle rather than go silent. But I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, my God, we caused this to happen. We could have caused events to move in another direction. We might have been able to influence events if we had a relationship with 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 Europe, but with, have, with but, other Asian countries. But doesn't this we might have been able to lead a broader right. a broader group of countries of interest right. to say something. But we're not operating like that okay, right but, now. Uh, but Dan Lipner, we've got a president right now that is sitting there talking about how close friends he is with President Z, how they're on first name, they're reading each other bedtime stories and (laughs) baking cookies for each other at Christmas. At the same time, if you have that kind of relationship, there is almost an expectation that we should use that relationship and say, hey, if you want to do quid pro quo, do us a favor, quit throwing tear gas and laser beams out there. I, I mean, you, I mean, you, you get where I'm going with this, though, right, Dan? I get where you're going with this, but lo and behold, both 
China and North Korea also get cable news feeds. <laughs> this president is in a remarkably weak position. And the fact that's not what he says. While domestically to his audiences in Louisiana, she lost and Kentucky, but she lost. Um, he's constantly saying how strong he is on fighting for their issues. In fact, these are folks who might have a brain in their head as well and can see this is a bully who has been negotiating, who's a bad negotiator, who is in a remarkably weak position. And China, knowing full well, if they tighten ever so slightly the trade issues against Donald Trump, there's absolutely no chance he gets reelected. I mean, right Rich- now it's a nominal chance. Right. If R- they Richard- tighten it, it's a no chance. Right. And they're playing the long game. Right. Xi has no domestic political issue at right. play. So, and so- the president is playing no issue on principle. So, Rich Rubino, it, it it strikes me that, you know, I brought up Tiananmen Square earlier. We saw the the strong reaction, not only from the United States, but from our allies, uh, particularly in the, in the region. Uh, we're, are, do you think that there is an interest for us to stay quiet and to kind of keep our allies at bay on this? I think, well, the interest is probably, yes, is probably to stay quiet. I don't know how it necessarily benefits the United States. I mean, for the United States to do anything short of an attack on mainland China, which is not going to happen, um, being involved or being being involved in this, is, I don't see how it necessarily is going to do anything to halt the, chi- to halt the um, actions of the Chinese. We have our own problems with China in terms of the tariffs, in terms of the trade war. I don't know how necessarily getting involved in something which um, – you know, we don't really have any direct, you know, our vital national security interests. Um, I don't see how that necessarily, um, how, that, how that necessarily is indirectly oh, going to benefit. Rich, we, Rich, we have, oh, it, it, oh, hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Dan, price Dan. On, the, on the altar of freedom, Dan. you could actually say that there is something more at play here. Saying, yeah. now, I don't think he's that kind of principled player, saying that, you know, I will hang my reelection, I will hang the no, American no. people saying that we are here on the altar of freedom to fight for those folks who fight for it. That is not who this president is. That's not putting boots on the ground. That's saying we will put a block on all Chinese ships delivering anything in trade. This president Dan. could say that if he was a principled person. All right. He is not whoa, that person. Whoa, 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 Dan, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, hold on. Alan Moore. Dan's definition of principle is to, to halt... All trade with China. There's obviously a line before that. There's no, obviously a lot of lines well, no, before no, but that. Dan, I'm, I'm only reacting argument. to your words, Dan. Yeah, I hear you. Pardon, excuse me for listening. So let me go back to Rich Rubino since Dan interrupted. <laughs> Rich, you know, I, I, I still think that there is, uh, if we do have the influence, if we still have the strength and the power to negotiate and make deals, does it make sense to get Japan? Does it get, make sense to get uh, the leadership in Seoul to start weighing in on this Hong Kong issue? Or is that too risky? Does Hong Kong pose such a huge economic impact on the entire world? We just can't poke at that. No, I think that's pretty much true. And you also don't know what the unintended consequences of this are going to be, you know, you never, you know, you, we never expected, for example, that when we, at the end of the Gulf, when, during the Gulf War after Iraq invaded Kuwait, when the United States put troops in Saudi Arabia, that that would essentially precipitate Osama bin Laden to, you know, to, to lead Al Qaeda against the United States, for example. You just never know what essentially is going to happen. That's why I usually err on the side of, unless there is a legitimate interest or there's certainly a humanitarian interest, like in Rwanda or, for that matter, in Somalia. I don't know how necessarily us getting involved is going to benefit anybody and we're certainly at the we're certainly at a low um, in terms of respect in the world right now as it is um, and with all of our economic interests with the mainland China directly why do we want to kind of poke at that bear and what direct benefit do we get out of it right and, and, and rich is right but there's no in-between line there's no hint of communication from the administration saying 
we will not allow this. We will not stand for this. There will be consequences. There has been absolutely no whisper suggesting the United States has an interest there and that has an effect. Right. Well, Dan, Alan, Dan brings up a good point. And, and this is one of the things that I have a question about is the longer we stay quiet, the longer that Beijing's allowed to flex their muscles in Hong Kong, we've already seen an, a more open, a more economic-friendly dialogue happening between the Aussies, the New Zealanders, and others in that uh, Pacific Rim region. Those who would normally be very tight with us and take our side— it, the more that they flex their muscles on this, the more they flex their economic muscles uh, on on running the trade wars and be, having the upper hand there. And a defense pact with South Korea. Right. Are we are we starting to see uh, a, a dynamic shift in who the number one global power is? Are it, we losing it, ground? It, it, it's... It, it's hard to know. Okay, we're we're we, we have lost opportunity after opportunity in the last three years in the region, um, and it started with us walking away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, a big trade deal that would have strengthened our ties to some of the Chinese partners. And then China swo- some, so, some swoops in and gets Australia, well, New Zealand. Well, they don't swoop in. It's that it, it, it's not that simple. We are still way more important to Australia and New Zealand, um, but but. It's it's a it's kind of an erosion. The, the the challenge is, and remember, we talk about China and Hong Kong. Hong Kong is part of China, right? It's 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 a it's a financial hub. It's three percent of China's GDP. It's not thirty. <laughs> That's not insignificant. It's not thirty percent of their GDP. All I'm saying is they. It's not like, the, but but what they cannot allow in the Chinese mind is. A major financial hub and a, and, a, and, a, and a lot of investment flows through Hong Kong from the rest of the world to parts of China. And what they but what they cannot allow is a degree of independence and autonomy that is not available in other parts of China. This was the conflict that we all saw coming when Hong Kong was returned, if you will, from British, I won't call it control anymore, but heavy influence, back to China. It's inevitable. But 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 Hong Kong, and some of us have been to Hong Kong, some of us multiple times, was a pretty free, open, freewheeling, independent city where, where it was a free enterprise system and enormous amount of political freedom for individuals and suddenly it becomes part of China but China wants to preserve its role as a financial center but slowly is tightening the grip and when we say you know I think Dan's words were we're not going to tolerate this well what are we going to do about it I I don't think that we're saying I don't think that we say we are not going to tolerate it because that suggests that we're prepared to do something, Rich. which does not mean we should be silent. But that's why we and the rest of the world need to make noise and provide some moral support, some enthusiasm, some encouragement. Because if if the if if the folks in China who are who are objecting um, know that the world is behind them, it encourages right. them, and it causes it can have China. They're not going right. to succumb to direct pressure, but they'll think. You know, we maybe need to rethink this because we don't need to take all this flack. Right. R- Rich Rubino is historically we've always kind of I mean at least me growing up we've always seen the Hong Kong that we know from the you know under the Union Jack under British rule. Uh this has not been the smoothest transition from British crown to Chinese central government, uh, or at least not what the rest of the world expected. How important is it that we get stability in Hong Kong, both from a security standpoint, from an economic standpoint? Well, I mean, it's vitally important, certainly, but I don't see necessarily what the United States can do um, that wouldn't have some sort of a deleterious effect on our on our policies toward mainland China and toward other countries in the region. I just, it's, 
you know, it reminds me, I mean, unless you're willing to essentially go in there and somehow, you know, somehow militarily, like, I, I mean, you know, it's probably better for the United States to stay out. I go back to in when George, after the after the Gulf War, when the Kurds rose up and the George H.W. Bush administration urged them to rise up and they actually did rise up. And then they essentially just let their hands down and let the Kurds, you know, get slaughtered by Saddam Hussein. You know, if you're going to actually use the rhetoric, then you have to actually, you know, if you're going to if you're going to if you're going to use the rhetoric, then you actually have to use have to do everything you possibly can to to defend that rhetoric. And I just don't see there being a scenario where you know Trump is going to actually necessarily do something here, or where you necessarily should do something here that would actually that couldn't affect us deleteriously down the road. Alan, you agree? Well, as I said. We need, there's a need to to speak out, to not be silent. It's one thing to be highly active and to threaten. It's another thing to, to do nothing. There's a middle ground of, of speaking out and trying to find a, a, a chorus of others who will speak with us on matters of principle and to see if that has any kind of impact. It, 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 our standing aside and saying nothing is is does harm to our standing in the world and and ends up being uh, sort of grotesquely supportive of of the abuses of the central china government uh, well, good yeah I, and yeah to, last to, word to, dan to, Lipner. to quote um martin luther king the 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 words of your enemies do not matter as much as the silence of your friends. Yeah. Oh, good point. Good quote. Hey, on behalf of uh, Dan Lipner, Alan Moore, Richard Bino, uh, Rob the Engineer behind the glass, special thanks to uh, Eric, our producer, doing Eric Thomas-type producer things. Uh, always a special love for Charlie and Oscar here at Podcast Village, our esteemed hosts, and uh, the eight proprietors of said podcast village. We will be with you as we always are next week. Uh, you can listen to us on your favorite podcasting services, whether it's Google, Apple, Spotify, uh, Spreaker. You can get us on our website, backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on Twitter, backroom at backroompolitic. We leave the last S off for savings. Have a great week, America. We'll see you. Bye-bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.